Hello, and welcome to The Art of Aging, which is part of the Abundant Aging podcast series from United Church Homes. On this show, we look at what it means to age in America and in other places around the world with positive and empowering conversations that challenge, encourage, and inspire all to age with abundance. I'm Mike, your host, and this is part of our Aging Innovators series. I'm very pleased to have Cyril Alnami with us to talk about her work at Human Centered Design. Uh, Sarah has an amazing history of innovation and design at a number of organizations that you know about. And last year, she partnered with United Church Homes to take human-centered design to our residents in what we called our first ever idea-thon. And yes, we are open to, to new names for these. So, Sarah, welcome. We are so happy to have you. Oh, thank you so much, Mike. I'm so happy to be here. Wonderful mm. that we could call that the time. Awesome. Well, look, I mean, I've got to start out by asking you about your background. You know, how did you find yourself in the world? First of all, let's start with this. How would you define human-centered design? Human-centered design. So I would think of it as, you know, for yourself, if you are gifting a good friend or someone that you know really well, you would be able to gift them something to maybe $5 or $10. And it would be very insightful, be very impactful. And they were like, oh my gosh, you really just kind of get me, you know? And so human-centered design is kind of that sensibility of we're creating something that really meets somebody's need, maybe a need that they didn't even know that they had. And we're designing something that's just really spot on. So it doesn't have to be sparkly or very tech-infused, although it can be. But really, it's filling a gap that that meets the person's you know belief system or moving through the world and to put it really simply you know if your best friend could buy you something for five dollars and just get you it's that kind of sensibility that we're bringing when we're designing and creating i i love the idea of bringing the perfect gift to somebody you know because what goes through my mind is empathy what goes through my mind is really just a clear understanding of you know, wants and needs. And it's, you know, people talk about the golden rule about, you know, you know, treating others as you would like to be treated. This reminds me of the platinum rule, which is treating people as they would like to be treated. And that takes that understanding. How did you find yourself in this world? So my background is in psychology and I love creativity. And I really stumbled into it by accident through a series of conversations, through being curious and somebody described this workplace where you would get to bounce around between different industries and meet different people and learn new things. And I said, sign me up. And so as a young grasshopper in London, that's where I started off at an innovation company called What If in London. And so that's, you know, that's how I really kicked it off by a happy accident, but also just kind of knowing that, you know, being open to new experiences, being perpetually curious and wanting to learn. I'm wanting to figure out how can we understand something and then creatively, um, uh, you know, make something from that place. That was the driver. So, yeah, London was the best place in it for me. And then I came to the States just to work with a startup. And as you'd know it, I was employee number two for luxury jewelry. And then after that, car dealers, because of course the two go so well together, you know? <laughs> um, sure. so, uh, right, yeah. And then I did a little stint to, you know, a small company that some people might know, Disney, here in Orlando, Florida. And so I think that's what I love about the skill set and this mindset is that it perpetuates from startups to 
you know, Fortune Tens to you know, your personal life to your workplace. It has that elasticity to, to provide value in so many situations. Yeah. And I, you know, I apologize because I know that we, we, we prepared some questions ahead of time, but you know, what, what kind of goes through my head right now is when you think about that experience, I mean, you think about you, you've kind of evolved an approach. And we're going to talk about the approach that we use for human-centered design now, but, but I'm wondering if there were any kind of moments of joy or discovery when you're kind of you know, talking with customers or designing something for them where you just felt that, that the approach of this empathetic co-creation with customers or this discovery, did, was there a point in your career where that kind of clicked for you and you said, oh, wow, there's something here? Yes. I think from the very beginning, really, yeah. I think that's what drove me because instead of, you know, I think that looking at reports is great and I think they, they serve such a massive value in the world, but being able to sit with somebody and, you know, sit in their homes, for example, you know, with Disney, we would actually go and sit in people's homes and actually get to be a part of their family and have dinners with them. And that's kind of an interaction that goes beyond, you know, bullet, you know, bullet nine or page 54. And, mm-hmm. and so with that, there's a visceral experience that happens where when you're creating a solution, you can go, oh, well, Angela would really like this or, oh no, like remember her daughter said this was important. So we need to make sure that we bake this into the solution. And so I think that kind of interaction is kind of going back to that best friend analogy, you know, how can we create for people that, you know, are not our aunt, you know, so how can we not make assumptions, but really spend the time with individuals getting to know them in that way. And that's where I think things really click into place. And the other thing that's really exciting for me is being able to take a team together to do that, you know, because then all of a sudden when we're creating together, everybody just kind of gets it, whether you're in marketing or sales or operations, all of a sudden everybody understands the Hispanic audience and they're just kind of rallying together and they're ambassadors for the solutions that are created. So I think that kind of course correct, making something that looks cool, um, but really like nobody's actually wanting it. Yeah. And it, you know, it seems pretty intimidating, you know, when you're talking about you know, getting people together and launching a product and really just finding a place to start with it. And, you know, it's, I don't know, a couple of things are going through my head here, but, you know, when we're talking about really where we go with design and design thinking, is it a myth? It, it, these don't need to be complex things, right? I mean, I know these are, there's a kind of trendy, fancy terms, but, you know, I, I, you know, I can think of a situation that I had where I, you know, was understanding, trying to understand how older people have their relationship with technology. And I can read articles and I can, you know, sort of you know, talk to people about it. And then my mom had trouble with her computer and I went with her to Best Buy to the Geek Squad counter. And we were waiting for about 40 or 45 minutes for, you know, someone to, you know, to take care of her. But I was observing every other person in line. And that told me just tons about older people and their relationships with technology. So when I think about human-centered design, you know, I'm thinking about the grand concept, but I'm also thinking about, I know, simple experiments. Is that kind of a, a right way to think about it? I love that so much. Like, yes, I feel like the more that I or other people can feel that it's within our grasp, that it's something that could be done in 
five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Could be a phone friend, could be just going to a park and observing. We have access to so much human-centered designs. It's essentially watching humans, talking to humans, you know, stepping into their shoes. And while we can do really big projects and consumer research projects, and again, those definitely have a role in the world, I think we can all be sort of empowered to go have these experiments, uh, think about where our audience might be, and then go hang out there, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, ask a friend to recommend a friend to chat to for 10 to 15 minutes to get a fresh perspective, you know, without leading the witness, just having a conversation as we do. And so I think the things that we naturally do as humans at a dinner party or just kind of on a day off can equally be applied to any project that we're facing. And there's a certain amount of kind of just relaxing and letting things go here, right? I mean, you're not having an agenda. You're just letting the experience kind of drive the insights and just kind of going with the flow, I guess, right? Exactly right. So if we're kind of out there, you know, already with an assumption in our mind and then seeking to validate that assumption, then that's just kind of, uh, that's one state of being, but then it doesn't allow us to discover new things, you know? Whereas if I'm not attached to an outcome and I'm, you know, having a discussion with somebody and genuinely being curious about their world, I think it's a very different place to kind of step into, you know? My favorite experiences are those 5 a.m. Uber runs because I meet the most unusual people, you know, usually, you know, I'm retired, they're telling their life story in a space of 20 minutes. I'm totally enamored and in awe, you know, and leaving kind of like ready to get on my plane. Those are the kind of experiences that, you know, at the time you might not know like, oh, how am I going to use this from a human-centered design project? But these are all kind of new fodder and new stimulus that we can apply at some point in the future. You know, and then there's the intentional excursions that you kind of mentioned that, you know, we know that we have an elderly audience, you know, going to Best Buy and seeing, you know, how they're interacting or what's happening for them. That speaks volumes beyond, you know, reading a report and, you know, being very much in a sort of analytical, non-emotional mind. Yeah, I know that this to our listeners may seem a little bit loosey-goosey, but I just want to kind of draw a comparison here between you know, how I, you know, I would at least have done, you know, product design in the past and what we're talking about now, you know, in the past we would have talked about, you know, here's a, a product that we think is really interesting and let's go out and do research and we'll do focus groups and market exercises and things like that and see if people like the idea. Um, but what occurs to me, and I want to draw back to a podcast we did with Deval Patel of Lotus, formerly of Apple, where he said, and I think that you know, a lot of entrepreneurs may be at risk for this when they have a great idea and they really think it's a good one. But he said, you know, how do you fall in love with the problem versus the solution first? You know, fall in love with the problem or fall in love with the opportunity. And it's kind of that, 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 that kind of analogy of falling in love, you know, means, you know, you sort of, you know, it, it's all about kind of trying to maybe live the experience or walk a mile in the person's shoes or really try to get to that. And he said, you know, until the points at which all the stories start overlapping. Does that kind of ring true for you? I, yes, I really deeply resonate. It's really spending the time 
um, you know, setting the context of what's going on, you know. So I think if you think of yourself as, you know, the world's leading investigator, whether it's, you know, Sherlock Holmes or maybe it's your mother or, you know, whoever it is, very curious, you know. Well, you know, what is that ultimate ego? And then really doing that exploration. So, you know, a lot of the time I use the metaphor of the six blind men who are describing an object and one is saying, you know, this feels like a sturdy wall. And the other one says, this feels like a snake. And the other one says, this feels like, a, you know, the texture of rope. And after a while, it's revealed that they're all touching the same object, which is an elephant, but from different perspectives. And so as I begin a project, you know, how can we see your perspectives, you know, because each one is so equally valid so that we can see the whole picture and then from that place, be able to create something that's meaningful within that landscape. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get into our question set, but that also spurs another thought with me. And it's something that you've taught us and, you know, everybody, and I think this actually leads into this next question, because I think that, you know, our listeners may feel that, oh my goodness, you know, I'm, I'm not a creative person. You know, I'm not a, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if I could really just go out and talk to somebody and then what that sort of thing. And, and, and we take it, you know, we take a team-based approach at United Church Homes. And, and the first thing I think when you started doing training with us, the first thing that you did is you had us kind of go through an exercise of analyzing our, the style in which we innovate or the style in which we create. And we all had different styles. And, and I think that one of the things you shared is like, you know, if you, if, first of all, anybody can do this, I think is what you had said. And that when, you know, if you want to solve a problem quickly, you might put people of the same types together and they can do it. But if you really want to attack and come up with innovative and unique approaches, if you really want to understand problems and opportunities, then diversity is kind of a key, putting different sorts of people together, just like the elephant analogy, right? Because everyone has a different piece of information or a different perspective. And then together, they all kind of see the elephant, right? Exactly right, Mike. Exactly right. I love talking about it in terms of superhero powers. So if you think about any, you know, any movie or any example that you might have that comes to mind, there's always distinct roles within a superhero team. And each one is bringing that to the table. And only together are they able to go through that serious journey and achieve what they want to achieve. And it's sort of the same thing with projects. It's like, you know, sometimes we might identify a specific skill set as being the creative one, you know, perhaps the ability to ideate and, you know, pattern build and come up with those wacky abstract ideas, right? But what we really reveal is that there are specific skill sets and they run through the innovation process and each is equally important to drive innovation out the doors or to have a successful project. And so there's, you know, we talked a lot about just now about, you know, falling in love with problem that would be the role of the clarifier you know the person who doesn't make assumptions and is reading yet another research paper and having a talk to just yet another person right uh and so that's so critical for setting the foundation and the stage and the opportunity for the project then you know there's that the ideator who sometimes people think that's the classic creative right the wacky one who's like you know why don't we you know, have cars magically appear, you know, and you can get into a stranger's car and you're like, no, that's not safe. That's not safe. 
because at that time it's so abstract and it's never existed before. But then, you know, there's other skill sets like the developer who takes something and is kind of weighing up the options, making it workable, making sure that it functions and treating it. And then finally, there's that Nike just do it person, the person who's always in the meeting, who's kind of ready to jump into action. You know, let's get this out into the door. Let's get something tangible there. And without any one of these, we would be stuck and we would either not have a product or an experience into market or be something that just, you know, wasn't really a fit. And I think that's the thing is that we need, we can do it in terms of diversity, in terms of individuals, but we can also cultivate it within ourselves in terms of, you think about going to the gym and getting those muscle reps. Some of your muscles might be a bit flabby. So for example, if your clarifier is a bit flabby, let's make sure that you're spending a bit of time in a project at the beginning to really understand what's going on, you know, and so on and so forth. So I love that, you know, these that these are skills that we can cultivate, but these are also skills that we can spot in the wild with others and say, you seem to have a real appetite to get a, you know, so implementing, taking these, I really love doing the research bit. Can we buddy up on this so that we can be really successful? And so I and just, just, so the, the four different types, an ideator, a clarifier, uh, uh, sorry, give me the other two. Developer uh, mm-hmm. and an influencer. Developer and implementer. So ideation, clarification, development, and so forth. Implementer. Okay. And, and for our listeners, is there a reference you can point them to if they want to kind of go on the internet and find this? Yeah, absolutely. If they go and have a look at Foresight, Foresight, the number four site that goes through the different types. And then also if they want to have an individual assessment or team assessment, there's something that I can run them through as well. But they can go geek out there and see if they can guess themselves and others. But then if they actually want to see what their, their preferences is, so like in a sciencey way, backed by you know, 65 years of research, then you know we can do that together as well. All right. And shout out to HiHelloSuro.com, which is your site, so people can check you out there. But I can also, so I can imagine this, that, you know, I've got the crazy ideas and the clarifiers like, wait, can I hear this? Can we kind of put this more into shape? And then... The developer is like, okay, let's workshop this a little bit. And and then the implementer is like, okay, this is how we can put this into action. And so there's so we're talking about ideas and we're talking about a system to develop those ideas. But I think it's first worth noting that in order for this to work, we have to get into this mindset that no idea is bad. And that, that may sound kind of crazy to people, right? Can you talk a little bit about kind of I can get into improv comedy here. Can you talk a little bit about the yes and principle? Yes, and. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of the time when an idea is fresh, it's going to seem a bit crazy. I talked about the example that, you know, listeners probably identify as Uber, right? At, at the beginning, it seemed a little bit crazy. So, but we don't know. You mean Uber, like I'm going to get into a stranger's car and they're going to drive me around and I'm going to get, and I'm not going to get murder. Exactly right. Or I'm going to sleep on a stranger's couch and, uh, you know, and I'm going to wake up alive (laughs) and I've got a good experience, you know, with Airbnb. And so with that, you know, the metaphor that really comes to mind is that of, you know, if I have two, two seeds in my hands and I say to you, which one is an acorn and which one is a weed? The easiest way to find out whether the seed is going to grow into a mighty tree 
although to be a weed, is to nurture it and to cultivate it. There's no other way to know. And so ideas are exactly in the same way. And, you know, we want to cultivate and nurture these ideas to see what their potential is, you know, and we need to give that some time and some space. And a lot of the time people are resistant. And one of the ways to do that, that you've heard mentioned is, you know, borrowed from the world of improv, which is using the language of yes and versus, you know, in other instances, if we're not really sure about something, we'll say, no, that won't work because, you know, budget, we did it before, etc. Or, you know, sometimes people have another resistance by saying yes, or, you know, yes, or we could, you know, go flying or they'll make something completely different that's not growing the idea. And so giving the time to grow the idea, one, that we get past the low-hanging fruit and you can really see the potential of what this thing can be. And then two, People confuse nurturing an idea with green lighting an idea. They think that if they're giving it some love and some attention and some nurturing, it means that they're saying, okay, I'm going to allocate budget to this. Or it means I'm going to be personally responsible for putting this out into the market. And that can be really scary for people. And so there is a distinction in activities that just because you're nurturing something doesn't mean that you're saying okay to it. That's really important because I think in the environment that we're creating, and I love the I love the flower versus seed analogy because, you know, if you have a bunch of seeds, you know, seeds meaning ideas, plant them until they start to grow. And then as soon as one is a weed, we have to pluck it and remove it, right? So every idea has to get some sort of a chance. And I think there's also a concept here about intent, right? I think that the so, so one of the exercises that I really like is the exercise of, you know, putting a, a crazy idea in front of a group and using the yes and principle, right? So, you know, you know, what if we were to take a big slingshot and slingshot to work, or what if we put seats on the wing of an airplane, or what if we had invisible clothing, or what if we have so so? If we talk about something like oh, seats on you know, seats on the wings of an airplane. It's a terrible idea, awful idea. But but what would you say that the, the intent behind it, behind that idea might be? Right. I mean, following the intent could be fresh air, you know, additional additional room to sort of spread your legs and be comfortable, you know, a wingside view of nature. You know, so those could all be potential benefits. And then within that, you could say, okay, well, how might you bake that into the existing system of the plane? Or how might you provide brand new experiences that enable you to do that? Yeah. So if you have a work colleague come to you and say, hey, let's put the wings on the seats of an airplane, you know, it's, I mean, we could do the yes and thing and say, oh, yes. And we could put magazines there. Oh, yes. And we could put parachute or yes. And, but, you know, the, but what's the intent of the idea? You know, the intent of the idea is that, to make air travel more fun, to make air travel more exciting, to make air travel more, you know. So when, I guess once the conversation turns to that, it's kind of a, it's a whole new conversation, right? It's a whole new conversation because we're, we're uncovering a different need state or a different intent and motivation. And from that different place, then, you know, then we can open it up to other experiences or other creations, you know. So just because, you know, technically speaking, sitting on the wings of a plane, ah, maybe that's a bit dangerous. But to your point, if we could make air travel more fun, 
what are some of the experiences that we could make in you know, before you get on the plane, in your arrival, while you're on there, and so on and so forth. I just want to kind of go back and review the steps of at least our human-centered design process with our listeners, because I want to kind of get to the next stage, which is now that you have ideas, how do you choose them, right? But if we, so we've talked about sort of, you know, falling in love with a problem or an opportunity. Uh, So if somebody has an idea, what's the intent? And then, you know, does it lead to a falling in love with that and some techniques to do so observational, talking with people, talking with stakeholders until their stories repeat themselves, really kind of getting a good sense of those insights. After you've identified the problem or opportunity, then put a diverse group of people together in a room and then set the stage for it, maybe through some fun exercises like you know, tossing out crazy ideas and using a yes and type philosophy to not discount them, but maybe to expand on them a little bit more, talking about the intent behind the ideas. And then we kind of got, get into the actual ideation around that problem or opportunity. And from what we've done in the past, I mean, you know, you know, the thing that was really kind of striking to me and what I didn't really understand at first is that, and I'm going to go back to the, the idea-a-thon that we did with our residents last year. We put a diverse group of residents ages 65 to 99 in a room for two days at our community in, in, in Parkview in, in, in Upper Sandusky, Upper Sandusky, Ohio. And we gave them a challenge. You know, what would $1,000 do to enhance resident life at Parkview? And, you know, the resident, what was interesting was the residents first said, well, I don't know, I live in the cottage and I don't know if my needs are the same as the, you know, as the assisted living people and all that, but we got them together. We did some icebreakers. We asked them to, you know, paired them up. They talked to each other. We asked the partner to introduce the other person to the room. We sort of broke the ice that way. Everyone kind of came with ideas about what that thousand dollars could do. And we all wrote them down and we sort of documented them and we drew pictures around them. But then it went to a next level that I didn't expect. And I thought it was a waste of time at first, but it was something where we said, okay, we're going to pretend that Oprah lives at Parkview. We're going to pretend that Jay Leno lives at Parkview. We're going to pretend that the Beatles or Pat Sajak and Vanna White live at Parkview. And what ideas or what could they bring to the table at Parkview? And then it was like this, it was really kind of abstract. But can you speak to that? I mean, why did we do that? Yes, exactly. Because I, um, at the beginning, we've got our ideas and they're the low-hanging fruit. So they're the ones that we know and love and have cherished and kind of nurtured for a little bit of time. But they are probably the obvious ones. And a lot of the times we're looking to push the thinking, we need to push the spectrum of thinking, which means that we need to kind of get more into the world of analogy or the world of metaphor where things don't quite make sense because we use analogies and metaphors just as you talked about, you know, wings sitting on the wing of a plane. We use that to express things that don't yet exist, right? And that's the only way that we can kind of build a bridge into this new world. So the reason that we went there is, you know, what if Oprah was designing something is that it's pushing the thinking into a new realm that we might not have considered before. And then from there, we can kind of take the seed or the nugget or the intent and go, okay, what does that really mean? What would it really mean if Oprah was there? Is is there like a bountiful experiences? Is well-being enhanced? You know, what is it that is really at the root that's driving this idea behind Oprah presenting, you know? The intent that we're talking about, yeah. 
And like we're breaking our rigorous thinking. We have a huge expertise of thinking in a certain way. So how can we break that rigorous thinking, jump out of it in a way? And these kind of exercises enable us to do that because we're creatures of habit to create that expertise. And so we need these kind of activities to introduce something that at first seems kind of wild, but later on you'll go, okay, well, I see what's going on here. I can use, you know, if you're cooking, you've got that reduction source, right? What's the essence of what's here? I can use that to create something new. And that's really the driver behind any of these lateral thinking. What you're talking about is a lateral thinking activity. There's so many lateral thinking activities that they're available everywhere. There's a variety. And the core intent is to get us thinking in new ways so that, you know, very much like cooking, you cook with the same ingredients, your food is going to taste the same. If you introduce the suddenly this new spice or this new vegetable, all of a sudden things are different, right? So how can we do that with our ideation process so that, you know, we're not just making incremental changes, maybe we're making something that's really going to take a situation into leaps and bounds into the future. Yeah, and what I liked about the exercise that we did with our residents at Parkview was that you know, we came up with so many of these ideas. And first of all, some of the ideas were really quickly actionable. I mean, one of the, you know, you know, we should fix the player piano. And it turned out they just did, we just didn't know how to turn on the player piano. So that right. was fine. That was good. But I love the, I love how we sort of took all those ideas and we kind of found themes within them. You know, between all of the residents sort of coming up with ideas of what could benefit them, what they could own. And by the way, for the listeners, the, the this would be, not be something that staff would do. This would be something that residents would lead themselves. I mean, I just gave them $1,000 and they just sort of took off with it. And so when we sort of looked through all those ideas, it's kind of like we could group the ideas together into even larger themes. And I'm thinking about an example where somebody wanted to get outdoor lights and somebody wanted to have a pollinator garden. Somebody wanted to improve the picnic area. And we sort of grouped that into a bigger idea about sort of environmentalism and really being good stewards and sort of putting our act and then another one around music and musicality and another one around fitness and exercise and balance. So, 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 you know, ideation, consolidation, but then we had to get into some more, we had to start cutting those ideas. We had to start really kind of driving them down. And I know that we, and, and, and that means constraints. And we already had a constraint with a thousand dollars. We already had a constraint with the resident run and it has to be resident run and also benefiting everybody at Parkview. But can you talk a little bit about, I mean, we call the first part kind of really expansive thinking. Can we, and just your analogy, maybe in a different way about re- reduction, how can we talk about maybe more reductive thinking, kind of really getting down to something that's tangible where, you know, the, the practical minded side comes in and we actually think about ideas that are maybe more feasible. Yeah, it's absolutely. I think reductive or constraints are, you know, really the moment for inception of new things. So they're absolutely really beautiful. So yeah, when we had the ideas, we put them against the lens of our success criteria, right? So we'd already identified at the beginning, you know, you know, how do we know if we're successful? Well, these five things need to happen in order for us to know that we're successful. So we mapped each idea alongside the success criteria, and we were very quickly and visually, it's kind of like a spider brand, if you will, able to see how an idea is performing. Ideas can often be very subjective, 
and very emotion-fueled. And that's really great. You know, we had a vote of that. We looked at sort of where is the passion of the room? Where are people really excited? And that's very important as well. But then how do we have an objective conversation about these ideas and how they're performing, especially when they're new? We map them against the success criteria. And then from there, we're able to see, wow, this one is performing really well against these three, but is a little weak on these two. This one is, it has a big surface area. This one has a really tiny surface area. So all of a sudden, you're able to prioritize your ideas, number one. And number two, with the ones that you prioritize, we're able to see where there are additional opportunities to bolster them and to grow or, them. Yes. After them. Because you want to kind of like, you're thinking about them as like, well, you know, newborns, if you will. And you want to make sure that you're arming them, you know, giving them all the padding so that they can kind of survive in the wild, right? And so if we know, for example, that, um, you know, the rollout is going to take 10 years and we want our rollout to happen in a year, how can we adjust this idea so that the rollout is possible? Right, right. So yeah, so for our listeners, you know, we call this a stargazer exercise. And imagine that you'll come up with any number of criteria that, that the idea needs to be kind of measured against. So in our case, has to cost $1,000 or less, resident run, has to benefit as many residents as possible, um, you know, must be executed within a year, there's something else. But so if we, you know, and you know, people will kind of, you know, rate the ideas based upon that. And we sort of, you know, something could be like, you know, a one or two or a three, and you kind of add them up and the points kind of get you to the best part. But if you had an idea that everybody liked, and maybe it's limiting on, I don't know, time to roll it up as you, uh, as you outlined, I'm still new to this. So then you go back and you say, okay, this is a great idea, but it has this constraint that's really struggling, but can we modify the idea that it could happen in less time or, or cost less money or things like that? I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. And so I, I want to, you know, we're coming to the end, but I just wanted to kind of just for you and for the audience, kind of maybe just relay the process that we're using again. I'm learning too. So this is what we call our teach back thing. <laughs> I'm trying to teach back here. All right. So fall in love with the problem, observational conversations, interviews, talk to the people you aim to serve, the story up until the point where the stories really overlap. Okay, you got a good sense. Define the problem or opportunity. Put a diverse group together. Set the stage through some fun exercises that sort of get that no or yes but or yes or into a yes and type thing when people come up with ideas. Understand the intent behind the ideas. Expansive thinking. Grouping into themes. Reductive thinking using the stargazer exercise. And then, and for the audience, you know, when we did this with our residents, and we're going to be doing more of this, we think that this is, we think that resident run programming in this way is really sustainable. And they came up with three great ideas. They came up with outdoor life. They came up with music and musicality. They came up with exercise and balance. Uh, and, you know, they bought a karaoke machine. They're getting really fun cognitive, like brain games and exercise things coming together. But they, they put $1,000 toward it, which is what was really interesting that these, what they spent the money on was really symbolic, you know, that, you know, it, it, the, the karaoke machine is a representation of what musical life means at Parkview and that the $1,000 that they spent on the initial part of the gardens, 
they use that to raise an additional $40,000 for outdoor enhancement. And I just think that these little seeds can grow. And so we think that there's something there and you're helping us and just feel so thankful for that. But for anybody here that, that really wants to maybe be inspired by that process, and we're, by the way, we're both from the Commonwealth, so we use process, not process. So apologies to the audience in the United States. If you, uh, if, where could people go to maybe learn more about this methodology? Uh, you know, highholosuro.com, obviously they can find you there. Um, yes. But where, where else do you think that, that might be a good resource for people that, are, that want to adopt their own programs? Absolutely. I think that, so obviously Heinzlosura, and that has a slew of articles and podcasts at Gabor, which also we interviewed the residents that were part of the Ideathon, so they're able to share that. Right, yeah, you do, that. that's right, you do have a series on that, that's correct. And so it's so into yourself. Uh, but then also, you know, there are some great resources out in the wild, like, you know, you know IDEO is wonderful, they have such great snapshots of the process. There's a great book called Sticky Wisdom that was written by Wattis. That's like, you know, you could read that in the evening. It's really great. There's another great book called How Stella Saved the Farm. And that's a fable that is based on an innovation book, but they turned it into a fable where a goat was bringing, you know, a new industry of llamas and, you know, how does she do that? Because the llamas are so outlandish and they're so new. So I would say those are absolutely great resources to kind of get, you know, get a little bit stuck in and kind of whet the appetite for this. And the other thing that I would say is that there's so much out there. So I just take little bites and start applying immediately. You know, that's what I've seen is that when people, you know, for example, get a concept like, yes, Aaron, they're like, yeah, I get that. Like, it's so simple. But then all of a sudden they start using it uh, in meetings when initially they want to shut down something, uh, a co-worker is saying, or all of a sudden they're using that with their teenager to really hear what the teenager is actually expressing. And so the thread becomes embedded and it becomes more habitual. So while we can kind of get really immersed into all this different, all these different resources, it can sometimes be a bit overwhelming. So just a little bit at a time will go a long way. And I also like the idea of maybe some just activities people can do just to start small again, you know, just to put themselves into this creative, brush your teeth with your other hand, read a different magazine, listen to a different podcast. Of course, this podcast should be the one that people listen to first. Uh, find another way to work. I, I love the story of the London transit strike, strike from maybe 10 years ago where the entire system went on strike and everyone had to find a new way to work. And after the strike was over, you know, 10% of the people kept the new way because, you know, it was, it, it was more, there was something new out there that was better and they just never discovered it yet. So take that new way to work, read that new magazine, talk to someone that you've never talked to before. I mean, these are all little things that can spur creativity. But before we come to the end of our podcast, uh, three quick questions for you, sir, if you'll allow me. We always ask our guests these three questions. And so it's about aging. All right. Yes. So is it okay if I ask these of you? Please do. Okay. All right. So when you think about how you've aged, question number one, what do you think has changed about you or grown with you that you really like about yourself? What a great question. I think that I think my desire for my own company is something that I really enjoy about myself. So uh, I would 
usually go out there and be looking for the next sparkly new thing and kind of feel a bit sort of not satisfied. But then I realized that all the sparkly things were already within myself. So now I'm really enjoying it, which is great. So I think that's a, a massive shift since my 20s and really more something that's been coming into its own over just really the last couple of years. Oh, man, you're discovering your own richness inside yourself. That's wonderful. And okay, because so question number two, what has surprised you the most about you as you've aged? What has surprised me the most? I think the, um, I, I always consider myself to be a very extroverted individual. And now I'm really discovering a love for listening and observing and taking things in. So I wouldn't have guessed that from younger Sura, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I know I've always, I'm so excited. I always like to talk, but I mean, that's something I want to do is, is really, <laughs> that's, that's great. Even as, yeah, as a podcast host, that's important. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Okay, so no, number three. Is there someone that you've met or been in your life that has set a good example for you in aging? So someone that has maybe, as, as we call our series, somebody that's inspired you to age with abundance. Okay, this is so easy for me to answer because I think that Catherine, and I think her husband's name is David. Who oh, from, the per- from Perkview. Yeah, who were part of the ideas on literally like ambassadors for how I want to age. So, you know, they know all about blue living, so the tenants of having a good life. They're doing their gardening masterclass. They've done their purpose workshops. They sing. Their life is just so full and meaningful and connected to community. So, I mean, that's definitely my kind of, you know, bastion for, you know, future aging, you know? Oh, yeah, they just love life and they engage it and... You know, as we say, and with the theme of abundant aging, I mean, there's so much richness to life as you age. Even if your physical self is disappointing you, there are, this might be the time you might be most creative or engaging. And, and we want to give everyone everywhere more chance to experience that joy. And I really love the answer to that, that question, sir. And I think those guys, that, 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 that couple is amazing. So thank you. So, and then that means we're actually coming to the end of this one. We're coming to the end of this episode of The Art of Aging Innovators, part of the Abundant Aging Podcast series, which is from United Church Homes. And we want to hear from you. What, what's changed about you as you've aged that you love? What has surprised you the most? How do you define abundant aging? Who's your abundant aging hero? And what do you think of this concept of human-centered design? You know, are you, would you like to use it in your own life? And, and of course, we go to AbundantAgingPodcast.com to share your thoughts. And please like share subscribe abundantagingpodcast.com you can also find us on youtube under united church homes please subscribe to that you'll get more great content including our ask and have a guide series and sura again where can people find you yes they can find me at sorryhellosura.com and i release a lot of content of top tips on instagram and again that's hi hello sura or sura al navy on tip. All right. Hi, hello, Sura, S-U-R-A. Great. Well, thank you so much for being there. Thank you to our listeners for listening to this podcast. We hope to deliver you more great content in the future. Thank you so much. See you next time.